Good morning. Thank you for reading that, BJ. Uh, let me just go ahead and pray for us as we get started today. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for a place to come and to hear your word, Lord. I pray for um, our hearts to be receptive to what you have for us here, both in, in the words that you've allowed me to prepare, but then also, Lord, as we reflect on this passage together and seek to know you more. Help us to leave here affected by your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a good day to be here. My name is Zach, for anyone that doesn't know me, or Zachary. Um, and uh, I've been coming, I think we've been, my family's been here for about six months, and so it's, it's really great to be able to preach today um, in this nicely air-conditioned room. Yeah, amen. Uh, that's, that's such a blessing. Um, I'm pretty hot-natured in general. If you ask my wife uh, what the temperature in our house is, she would say way too cold. Um, but uh, I like to keep it cool. I like to be cool. So the concept of preaching without air conditioning uh, terrified me. So I was trying to figure out, like, are shorts appropriate? Can I wear my uh, swim trunks? Like, what can I get away with if there's not going to be an air condition? But uh, it's great that there is. I don't have to stand in a kiddie pool up here to preach. So, But it is good to be here, to be comfortable, and to continue in our Just Jesus series. So if you haven't already, if you're not there, turn with me in your Bible to John 14. But as we begin to look at this passage, I want us to kind of uh, put on our imagination caps for a minute, and I want us to think about what's happening. If you, if you will, I want us to imagine that as we're coming to John 14, we're becoming flies on the wall of the upper room. This is right in the middle of the upper room discourse. This is kind of the beginning of it. Um, this is the... Passion Week, this is Thursday night of Passion Week, the disciples and Jesus are gathered together to celebrate the Passover, and so we're going to kind of sneak in and sit in the corner and observe this conversation. So just kind of put your head in that space, think about it through that lens. We're walking into the upper room, and thanks to John, who was there, we get a first-person account of what's said. But before we begin in chapter 14, it helps to kind of look at what's already happened. If we were to move backwards and look at the earlier chapters, John 13 specifically, we would see a couple things that kind of set the tone in the room. First off, we would see Jesus in John 13 washing his disciples' feet, which is culturally just an incredible thing that their master, their rabbi and teacher, has gotten into a lowly position to wash their feet. We see in Peter's reaction where he said, Lord, surely you will not wash my feet. We see that this is, this is shocking to them. This catches them off guard. It's an unexpected moment, and it leaves them curious about what's happening here in this room. And then, continuing on in chapter 13, we would see Jesus declare that one of their number, one of this inner sanctum, this inner group, one of the twelve, that's been there this entire time, these past three years of Jesus' ministry, is going to betray Jesus. That would be an earth-shaking moment to hear. So you've come from the humbling and confusing moment of Jesus washing their feet to, one of you is going to betray me. And yet there's more coming still. Jesus then says that he's going away. He's leaving them. Four days before this, 
He was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people were celebrating and exalting him, saying, Hosanna, the Messiah has come. What do his disciples think about that moment? Do you ever think about that? Like, put yourselves in their shoes. Like, they've been with him this whole time. They've seen his works. And now here he is being exalted as he rides into, the, into uh, Jerusalem, fulfilling prophecy. They're thinking, all right, this is it. The time is here. Let's go take the crown. Let's go overthrow Rome. But now he's saying he's leaving four days later. What's going on here? And then... Right before we get to chapter 14, in another shocking episode, as he says he's going away, Peter, who's always the leader of the mouth, always the first one to talk, for better or for worse, always the mouthpiece, so to speak, he says, where are you going, Jesus? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come with me. Peter, being Peter, says, no, I'm going to come with you, Jesus. I've got this. In fact, I'll die for you if I need to. And listen to what Jesus says. This is the last, last verse of chapter 13. Jesus responds to Peter in his brashness and says, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So as we step into the room, this is what we're walking into. Think about the weight of this. He's just washed their feet. He's completely turned the cultural norm upside down. He said that one of them will betray him. He said that he's leaving. And he said that the leader of the group, the guy who is, you know, number one in the ranking, is going to deny him. If we're going to try to imagine ourselves in the room, think about the weight and the silence. Think about the, the deafening silence that we're stepping into. That's where we're coming in at. Jesus has just said this. You're going to deny me, Peter. And I don't think any of them are speaking up to ask what that means. They're, they're shook. Rightfully so. There's so much tension that you could cut it with a knife. And so out of this silence, as we step into John 14, we're going to see Jesus speak. In the beginning of chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. So out of this tension of these declarations in 13, in chapter 13, Jesus' soft voice speaks up and he offers comfort. He knows that their hearts are troubled. Of course they are. Everything that we just went over, they're sitting there completely rattled. They don't know what's going on. Right? We, we know from their questioning that they're confused. They're, they're looking for the answer. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. He offers them peace. And then he continues in verse 1, Believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I do go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So he is leaving. He will be betrayed, and he will be denied and deserted. But he's going with a purpose. As in, he's saying, this story is about to get dark. The narrative is about to reach a climax where it doesn't look good from you, the disciples' perspectives. But I know the ending. 
and I'm going to prepare a place, and I'm going to come back and take you to that place. They don't have to be troubled-hearted because they know that he will return for them, because he said that he will. And then in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, he continues and he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Now again, I just when I read narratives like this, I love to try to put myself in the shoes of the people that are living it. And again, they're confused. This whole night's been against their expectations. And they're saying, he's saying, okay, you know where I'm going. Uh, well, maybe we don't, Jesus. This creates confusion. Earlier, when he said that he was leaving, Peter asked, uh, where are you going, Lord? I'm going to come with you. And he got swatted down with the truth that he was going to deny him. So now it's Thomas's turn to ask. I like how Peter's not, he's not speaking up at this point. But Thomas says in verse 5, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Could you clarify this for us? And this brings us to the crux of the passage and what I really want us to drill down on today when Jesus turns to Thomas in verse 6 and he says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So there's confusion. He's, he says he's going to the Father's house. He says he's going to prepare a place. And they're like, how are we supposed to follow you? We don't know the way. And Jesus, in response, points to himself. He says, I am the way. He's going to the Father and he's saying, I am the way to the Father. But what, what does this mean? It's not a map or, or directions. They aren't really any closer to understanding how they're supposed to respond to this or how they're supposed to follow him. What does it mean for the disciples? And then subsequently for us, observing this, what does it mean that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And so what I want to do today is I want to look at each of these three things that Jesus says about himself, and I want to break them down in light of this moment, but then also the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry and what we see in Scripture. So first, Jesus is the way. Now, if we were to jump back in time a few months to our Genesis series, right? We're about halfway through Genesis, so we'll be finishing that in another year or so. Sean's taking his time. But if we were to jump back and look at the first three chapters of Genesis, I'm not sure I was even here when Sean preached that, what would we find there? We would discover three main things in that narrative that set the tone for all of Scripture and all of human history. First, we would find the truth that God made humans. Second, God desired relationship with humans. He made them in His image that He might know them and walk with them. And then third, in Genesis 3, we would discover that man has rejected God and has broken that relationship with Him through sinfulness. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden because of their sin. And the relationship that they had with God walking with Him in the cool of the morning is severed. All of a sudden, there's something between the holy and perfect God and the now sinful and fallen humanity. There's separation. But as we continue on in Genesis, we would see that the story doesn't end there. God doesn't hit the reset button and start over with a new batch. In fact, the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one of restoration. 
God is seeking the restoration of humanity. He's seeking to restore the broken relationship that was broken at Eden. And we see this throughout Genesis as we've studied together. We see this in Noah when God calls Noah and delivers him from the flood. We see this when God calls Abram, who would become Abraham, and he promises to make a great nation from his descendants. If we were to continue past Genesis, we would see this in Exodus 2, where the people of Israel, God's people, are suffering in slavery, and they call out for help. And it says in Exodus 2, God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This remembrance of His people, it leads to Him delivering them from slavery in Egypt. It leads to a confrontation between God and Pharaoh that ends with, with what? With Passover. The very thing that we're in the upper room celebrating right now. So if we're flies on the wall of this upper room, we can smell this roasted lamb and the bitter herbs. We can hear the crunching of the the unleavened bread as they remember Exodus. And they remember that God is calling His people out of exile to Himself. And Passover represented the single greatest illustration of that in the history of the Israelites. This is the ultimate reminder that God has pursued people that have rejected Him and have sinned against Him, and He's pursued them and brought them back to Himself. Through the blood of the lambs painted on the doorpost at Passover, God had provided a way. But now, on this night and in this context, Jesus is saying, I am the way. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 10 when he says that the law and the sacrifices and everything that we see in the Old Testament was pointing to a greater version of itself, to a greater fulfillment that we would see in Jesus. I brought up this, uh, this bulletin piece from our songs today, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Um, see the true and better Adam See, the, the, the light of life has come. The fulfillment of the law. Jesus is saying, all of these things that we're celebrating tonight were pointing forward to Me. No longer was the way to the Father through the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, as it had been in the Old Testament system, but now Jesus had come to prepare a way. When Jesus in this same meal, later this night, takes the cup and the bread and institutes the Lord's Supper, what is He doing? He's placing Himself in the place of that Passover lamb. He's saying, while your fathers covered the doorpost with the blood of the lamb for the forgiveness of sins and the deliverance from wrath, I'm covering you with my blood. And when he says in verse 2 that he's going to prepare a way, he's talking about two things. First and foremost, he's saying, yes, he is going to the Father, and he's going to go to the Father's side, but what is he going to do between now and then? He's going to go to the cross. He's about to go and die on the cross, and his blood will be poured out to be 
that covering. And so everything in the Old Testament, all the laws and the regulations, point for the need, point to the need for a way to be prepared. The need for that relationship that's broken to be brought back together. And Jesus' mere hours in John 14, he's just hours away from fulfilling that need. And what do we see when that happens? What do we see when Christ's life is given up on the cross? We see the veil is torn. The veil that represented the separation between holy God and sinful humanity that could only be passed through on the Day of Atonement through the blood of bulls and goats as a sacrifice to indicate that a way was needed to be prepared, now it's torn in half because the ultimate way has come. This is why Paul says in confidence, with confidence in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far, far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus, through His work on the cross, is the way to the Father. And so belief in Jesus is the path to a restored relationship with God. He's saying, look to me as the way to the Father. And as he says at the end of verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, not only am I the way, I'm the only way. Not a way, not one of many ways. And this is, as I was thinking through this, this so perfectly goes against everything that our culture wants to say today. It flies in the face of what society says, which is that always lead to heaven. There's no right way. All the paths are going to get you there. Just do what's right for you and you'll end up there. Just buy into the Oprah religion. Our society is poisoned by this lie of, of coexistence. We've all seen the bumper stickers, right? Going through the Chick-fil-A parking lot, going to get some Jesus chicken, and then right there in front of you, coexist on the bumper sticker. We see it on the yard signs around our neighborhoods. This concept that Every path gets you to the same place. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's very clear. He is the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. And so for us sitting here, most of us sitting here are, are Baptists. Most of us probably aren't trying to uh, follow the seven pillars of Buddha if that's what that is, or, or follow Allah or anything like that to get to heaven. We're probably not rank uni universalists who believe that all paths lead to heaven. But that doesn't mean that we're immune to finding our own way. What does that look like for us? Maybe not other religions or other philosophies, but what about works-based religion? What about trying to come to Jesus on our terms? based on what we can do. But Jesus is saying that doesn't work either. Apart from belief in Jesus as the only way, there is no other way to the Father. And so why is this so exclusive? It doesn't sound very welcoming. This wouldn't play very well with the modern crowd, would it? How can Jesus be so exclusionary? It's kind of bullying if you think about it. But this brings us to the second declaration of who Jesus is, the second thing that he says about himself in verse, in verse 6 there. 
Jesus is the truth. So if we were to jump forward in John to chapter 18, we would find this really interesting interaction between Jesus and Pilate, who's the Roman governor at the time. This is after Jesus has been betrayed, after he's been arrested, and he's taken to Pilate because the Jewish leaders want him put to death, and Pilate's the guy to do that. And Pilate, kind of confused as to what Jesus has done wrong to deserve death, begins asking him questions. Specifically, he asks, are you the king of the Jews? Because that was what he was accused of of saying about himself. Jesus kind of goes back and forth. He's not giving Pilate a direct answer. He's, He's making Pilate think a little bit. But he says, Jesus says to him, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So there in John 18, we hear, again, put yourself in the room. You can hear the scoff in Pilate's voice as he turns away and he says, what is truth? And he walks away from Jesus. But this response of Pilate is exactly what is so common in our world. Not only do all paths lead to heaven, but we live in a postmodern world where truth is completely relative. It doesn't matter what you believe because that's just your truth. That might be true for you, but it isn't true for me. It's completely oxymoronic, and we know that, but that's where our society's at. So this permeates our society to the point where people feel the liberty to determine their own reality about gender, about relationships, about history, about reality itself. But again, this is incompatible with what Jesus is saying. He is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other truth. Hebrews 1, verse 1 says this about Jesus. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So what Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus is the greater revelation He's the perfect revelation. He's the perfect revelation of truth. Just as He is the, most per, the, the more perfect sacrifice, the fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament sacrificial system, so He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament revelation. The prophets and the writers in the Old Testament saw in part and spoke in part as revealed to them by God, but there was something greater coming that they were pointing to. And Jesus is that greater thing. He has come to reveal God perfectly, without ambiguity. Paul in Colossians uh, calls him the image of the invisible God. John, when he introduces his his gospel in chapter 1, says that he's the word of God and that everything was made through him and that he is God. And then he refers to him as the light that shines in the darkness the light bulb that turns on in a dark room and illuminates everything. And in the darkness of a world full of sin, Jesus has come as the perfect revelation to make God the Father known. This is is truth. This is the truth. 
Jesus is the truth. And so when we encounter those ideas in our world that say there's no such thing as truth, or truth is relative, or that's just your truth, we say, no, we know Jesus is the truth. And his, his revelation of reality and of who we are as people and who he made us to be is truth. Apart from that, there is no other truth. He has come and to be the way to the Father and to reveal the truth of the Father. And that brings us to the last thing that he says about himself, which is that he is the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The human condition is one of death. From the moment that Eve's mouth closed around that piece of fruit, while Adam stood by idly, allowing his family to slip into sin, death has reigned in this world. The cataclysmic shift happened right then, and the perfect creation that had been created without death was cast into the tumult of suffering and decay brought about by death. Everything to the east of Eden, everything where they're cast out of Eden, on this side of the flaming sword is death. If you remember back again to our Genesis series, when Sean preached through the genealogies of Genesis, there's this one refrain that repeats over and over again. And he died. So-and-so lived this long, had this many kids, and he died. That's the refrain of the human existence. This isn't, this isn't hard for us to get. This isn't hard for us to understand. We live this. We see this. Think about all the ways that death impacts our life. Not just the actual end of death, but think about the decay of death that leads to our final days. How many woke up here with a sore back? How many woke up with a headache or not quite feeling right? You know, this isn't hard for us to understand. Death is a constant in our life. Suffering is a constant in our life. We live in a world marred by the effects of sins, and we carry that in our mortal bodies. We ache, we have pains, we have sufferings. We live in a world that has pandemics. We live in a world that has natural disasters. Even, even smaller inconvenient things, we live in a world that has really high gas prices. All of this is reflective of the reality that we live in a world impacted by what happened at that tree in Eden. Paul says in Romans that death came through the world through sin, and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all under the weight of sin. And because of our sin, we're under the curse of death. What's that old uh, tough guy saying from the old movies? He's already dead. His heart just hasn't stopped beating yet. That's how we live. Think of the inevitability of that. There's good news at the end of this. I'm not trying to just be a downer. We're dead even while we're living here on earth. But Jesus is saying, there is another way. He is the way and the truth and the life. One of my, per one of my favorite passages in all of Scriptures captures this, 
this perfectly. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we were dead in our sins, among whom you all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our sins, living in a world full of death and decay. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But God. The world of death and decay that's so common and so known to us, there is an answer. There is a way. Jesus has made us alive. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The word that's used here for life when Jesus says, I am the life in 14.6, it's the same word that's used there in John 10, and then again in a very familiar verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So there is new life for those who are in Jesus. There is new life through the way and the truth and the life, Jesus for those who believe in Him and His promises. But what, is, what does that look like, to believe? We talked about the exclusivity of, of the way being through belief in Christ, but what does that look like? I think we get a good picture of that in John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking with one of the, the leaders of the people, a Pharisee, a teacher of the people, a scholar, named Nicodemus. And in that conversation, and I won't get into it too deeply, but in that conversation, he references a somewhat strange story from the Old Testament, from Moses' time. The story found, is found in Numbers 21. And in this story, the people of Israel, shockingly enough, rebel against God yet again. And God punishes them. He does so by sending poisonous snakes into the camp. And the people are bit by the snakes and people die as a result. That would probably be the worst punishment because snakes are awful. But as always happens in the Old Testament, the people are punished and then they cry out for mercy. They go to Moses and they say, pray to God, intercede for us on our behalf that God might take away this punishment. So Moses Again, this is a very common refrain throughout the Old Testament. Moses prays to God for relief, and God instructs Moses to do something kind of strange. Unexpected, maybe, is a better word. He tells Moses to craft a bronze snake and hang it in the middle of the camp on a post. Then he says, when anyone is stricken by the snakes, when anyone is bitten by the snakes, they can come to the middle of camp and they can look up at this snake, this serpent, and they'll be healed. They'll be spared. What's, what's going on here? This is just unexpected when we come to this in Scripture. But what it is is an expression of faith. This isn't, 
This isn't an idol that they're worshiping to be delivered from the snake. Obviously not. God isn't installing some form of idolatry in the middle of camp. But it's an expression of something, of going and looking up at the snake and being healed, of believing that God can heal. It's, it, this, this serpent doesn't have medicinal properties. It doesn't uh, dispense antidote or vaccines or essential oils or whatever. Right? It can't heal you with doTERRA. It's a picture of God's mercy. And all that it took for the people of Israel to be healed was a conscious choice to look upon the servant and to believe that God is the giver of life. So what does it have to do with, with Jesus? Well, in John chapter 3, Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, a phrase Jesus used to refer to himself, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is pointing to this as an example, and he's pointing to the future that's coming right around the corner from John 14, where we're reading, where he's going to be lifted up. He says again in John 12, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So Jesus is comparing his being lifted up to that of the serpent. This picture of deliverance. And all that the people of Israel had to do was go to the middle of camp, look at the serpent, and believe that God would save them. And what Jesus is saying is that all that we have to do is look at Jesus lifted up and believe that God will save him. What's that refrain from the old hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus is speaking of a belief that looks at him and sees him as the way, the truth, and the life. A deliverance from this, this domain of, of death. This is important. This isn't, this isn't nothing. Even for those of us that are Christians here, we have to think about the weight of this. Our society, just like they ignore truth and ignore reality, they celebrate death. Have you thought about this? This, this world of death away from Christ and away from the way to life that he provides, celebrates death. What an appropriate time to think about this than the month of June, where people are going on parades to celebrate the rejection of God and everything he's commanded in Scripture. Celebrating the death and the curse that they're living under. We've just seen, as Sean referenced, a huge Supreme Court ruling that's going to tangibly protect lives. There are already states where abortions are being canceled because it's illegal now. Praise God for that. And yet, what's the reaction that we've seen? People lamenting that. People raging against that. The effects of death are saturated in this world, but God, through Jesus, has made us alive. And so as we tiptoe out of the upper room, 
leaving off here at verse 7. As we close the door, I want us to leave with three questions kind of of meditation and reflection. Three things to think about both as we leave this passage and then as we leave today. First, this is the most basic and important question we can ask after engaging this passage. And that is whether or not we know Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Do we believe the words of Jesus? Do we know Jesus to be the way to the Father, to be the way from death to life? Do we crawl on our hands and knees and look up to the lifted up Savior, the proper Passover lamb and the one who has called us out of darkness into light? Do we believe that Jesus is the way to the Father? And if you're here today, and you've never thought of it this way, or you're not sure if you do, I encourage you, don't don't walk out the door unsure of that. Find one of the pastors. Find Derek. Find Sean. Ask them, like, what does it mean to believe on Jesus Christ for life? He is the way. Do we believe that? Do we believe that he is the truth and that his words are truth and that, as Peter says in John chapter 6, that he holds the words of eternal life? And secondly, then, the question that we can ask next is, do we do his works? We heard read the the entire first 14 uh, verses of, of chapter 14, and in verse 12, Jesus says that whoever believes in him will do the works that he does. There's an active transition that happens. So what does it look like in our lives? Do we we love God? Do we love our neighbors? Previously, in, in chapter 13, Jesus gives a new commandment. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if we know God, if we know Jesus, do we do His works? Do we love others? Do we seek to make much of the Messiah as the way to life? And then lastly, the third question, just to to think about as we leave here, is do we anxiously await His coming? Think about this. Why were they not to have troubled hearts? Because He was going to prepare a place, And he was coming back. He's coming back to take them there. Not only has he gone to prepare that place for us, but he's promised he will return. Do we we live for that day? The day when all this death and, and, and suffering that we've talked about is erased by the return of Christ? Do we live in light of his coming? This should shape who we are. This should this should affect how we live. I was thinking about if you remember, and I can't believe this has been 10 years already, but when the Mayan calendar ended and the world was supposed to end, right? People were freaking out. I don't know how seriously people took it, but someone somewhere was really seriously worried about it. But the reality is that the world is going to end someday. When Jesus returns, as he says he will. So how do we live? Do we live doing the works 
that he commands us to do, knowing every single day that we're one day closer? Do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, seeking to honor God in everything that we say and think and do? The disciples' hearts weren't to be uh, light and airy, to be untroubled because, exclusively because he was uh, just saying, don't have, be heavy-hearted. They were to be untroubled because he was going to come back. His return is imminent. They were to be delivered from the pain and suffering and anguish that comes from living on this side of Eden. We see in John 16, just a couple, a couple pages ahead, Jesus warning them about the suffering and some of the difficulties that are going to face them. But he ends the chapter saying, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We, like the disciples in the upper room, can take heart and not be troubled because we know that Jesus has overcome the, the world and that he's coming back for us. So as Josh preached last week, we can take up our crosses and follow Jesus. We can suffer in this present world because we stand with Paul knowing that the pain and suffering of the present day is nothing compared to the glory that's coming. We can work each and every day to know God better and to love our neighbors more. But we do so aware of the fact that He's coming back. So we in the 21st century, we get to stand and echo what John, the same author that wrote these, this, these words in chapter 14 that recounted this interaction, we can echo what he says in Revelation at the end of Scripture, the last entry in the entire scriptural catalog. Jesus says at the end of his revelation to John, I'm coming soon. And John responds, even so come Lord Jesus. That can be our refrain because we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life.